Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books across a wide variety of philosophical topics and areas. Today's interview is with Britt Brogard, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. We'll be talking about her new book, Transient Truths, an Essay in the Metaphysics of Propositions, which is just out from Oxford University Press. Propositions are key players in philosophy of language and mind. Roughly speaking, they are abstract repositories of meaning and truth. More specifically, they are the semantic values of truth-evaluable sentences. They are the objects of belief, desire, and other propositional attitudes, They are what we agree and disagree about in conversation, and they are what is communicated in successful discourse. By philosophical tradition, propositions have their truth values eternally. That is, they always include a reference to a time as a component, and if true, they are always true. The proposition expressed in English by the sentence, it is raining in Malta, is more completely expressed by something like, it is raining in Malta at noon local time on May 4th, 2013. This standard view is called eternalism. In her new book, Brogard calls this traditional view into question. Brogard defends temporalism, the claim that some propositions do not have their truth values eternally. They lack a timestamp, so to speak. In her book, she argues that eternalists cannot adequately explain how we retain beliefs over time, how we modify beliefs, and how we agree and disagree within the time span of an ordinary conversation. And she also presents a new argument for temporalism from the phenomenology of conscious mental states. Bogart's lucid and engaging discussion will be a milestone in debates about the nature of time and our experience of time as expressed in natural language. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Britt. Hello. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Um, So we'll be talking about your new book, Transient Truths, uh, an essay in the metaphysics of propositions. Um, So before we get into the the details of the book, um, maybe you can give us a little bit of background about... um, how you became interested in the topic and, and maybe how you got to philosophy to begin with, um, and then how you how you came to write this p- book in particular. Yeah, so uh, after I um, entered um, the department in the State's University uh, of Buffalo, um, I actually uh, entered in linguistics, um, the graduate school there, which was in the same, de- well, not quite the same department as philosophy, but it was on the same floor. Um, and I completed um, the coursework in linguistics uh, uh, and became interested in the semantics of tense, uh, but I also became interested in some of the more theoretical debates about time and uh, ended up actually writing my dissertation in, in philosophy. Um, I didn't, I didn't um, write about the semantics of tense in my dissertation, but I did uh, try to take the traditional system of muriology, which is something that has been defended by Polish logicians, and I was trying to uh, make that sensitive to time. But I can, continued having an interest in time, so both uh, in the semantics of tense, but also in in metaphysics. Uh, and then I, I read a couple of things. Um, I read Mark Richard's articles. I read uh, Jeffrey King's article where he's uh, talking about the semantics of tense and defending a quantifier theory of tense. And I came across Ludlow's book on tensism, where he argues for... Um, a, a kind of presentism, and then uh, I became interested in, in 
in that whole debate and also defended uh, these views in metaphysics, but I couldn't find any any lengthy discussion of um, of the temporalism eternalism debate. I just saw that a lot of people were eternalist or stated that the that temporalism was an absurd position. And so I started thinking about these issues, and uh, I thought that temporalism was a more plausible position, even independently of the metaphysics. And so I started writing this this book uh, in very early on, I think in, in 2003. I remember it had, I had a very rough manuscript in, in around, around 2006. Uh, I had the first very, very rough draft of, of the book. So could you, um, before we get into details, maybe you could uh, uh, explain the, the two different positions that, that are opposing each other, the temporalism that you support, and then contrasting that with the eternalism. Yeah, so uh, so temporalism is is actually a view in, um, in in philosophy of language and semantic eternalism, as we sometimes say, to to distinguish that from metaphysical eternalism is also a view in philosophy of language, and so that's about uh, about the language about prepositions, but it's part of a of, of a larger debate about about tense. So the Perhaps obvious or most obvious view is that tense is a feature of language. Um, but Peter Ludlow and, and others have argued that tense is uh, possibly also a feature of mental states and perhaps also a feature of, of the world. And that's what is sometimes called tensism. Uh, and, and that's a view that, um, so if you hold that tense is a property of the world, then you're committed to the view that that is a, a special now, a privileged now that's distinct from the past and the future. Um, and so, so that's um, that's tensism, and there are various forms that can take that that view can take. Uh, so some people would hold that there is this four-dimensional reality, but there is a special now, a different one, of course. Um, and to sort of, we have a moving spotlight, which the view is also sometimes called, uh, the sort of uh, sets light on on a different time. Um, so it goes through the, these times one at a one at a time, so to speak. Um, another view would be uh, that you have a four dimensional um, space time, but that the present moment is the edge of that uh, space time. So it's sort of growing. That's also called the growing block view. Um, and uh, a third view is, is presentism, that the only moment that exists is the present moment. Um, so the, the past past moments um, do not exist, and future moments do not exist, and past objects and future objects do not exist. And then um, there's, there's one more view that has been less discussed, discussed and that's a view that, um, that while all uh, times, events, and so on um, exist, uh, there's only one event that's happening, or only um, or, or only one instant, namely the present instant, that's that's concrete. So the past and future times would be abstract. Um, that's what I call the passage view in in the book. So these are uh, sort of metaphysical op- options for being uh, a tensist. Um, and I think I think that that the temporalism eternalism debate can be discussed in relation from the metaphysical debate, and that's what I'm doing in the book. Mostly, mm-hmm. I think that my my overall aim is to defend tensism ultimately. Um, well, could could you, for somebody who doesn't work in in this specific area, um, could you maybe explain what's what's at stake in the debate? Um, is it you know are are you trying to get something more psychologically real or or um, adequate in some way? I mean, what. Um, yeah, so in in um, in the broader debate that would include the metaphysics, right? Uh, what's at stake there is, of course, to to sort of there's this contrast between um, what we seem to experience. Um, we we do seem to experience something uh, that would be compatible with tensism, uh, namely passage. So there's a kind of sense that time is passing. Uh, but then, then in physics, uh, a lot of physicists have argued that there's no special time uh, that's privileged, and 
that's uh, that that's just a feature of our experience. Um, so that's that that sort of debate, uh, sort of either explaining away why we have these experiences that we do have, or trying to reconcile uh, our experiences with um, with physics, which doesn't seem to need a special now or a distinction between the past and the future, or at least some parts of physics do not. Um, so that that's one thing that's um, at stake. Uh, but there's, of course, also uh, more specific debates within uh, within philosophy of language. So there's, this relates to um, the view of, well, what is it that plays a role of a, a proposition? So a lot of people would agree that a proposition is whatever functions as the, the content of our utterances, the content of our mental states um, and, and the content modal intent operators operate on, the contents of disagreement, um, or maybe some subset of that. But then the view of, uh, arises, is it uh, a temporal proposition, so a proposition that can, or a content that can change its truth value across time? Is that what um, what's functions as a proposition? So is that what plays that role, the proposition role? Uh, or is it um, an eternal proposition? And temporalism merely holds that it's sometimes a temporal proposition, a proposition that can change its truth value over time, that, um, that is the content of our utterances and so forth, whereas eternalism says that basically that um, the only thing that can play the proposition role would be uh, eternalist content, so content that cannot change its truth value over time. So, yeah, so the, the temporalist is saying that, you know, at least sometimes, you know, we can, we can believe the same thing, believe the same thing, the same proposition at different mm-hmm. times. And uh, a belief that can be false at one time and then true at another time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, also that um, we can say the same thing, you know, s- express the same proposition at different times. Um, and that what we express can be true at one time and then false at another time. And so there mm-hmm. are, in some cases, some some of the things we think, some of the things we say, um, do not have within them, say, a temporal component, a reference to a time. Right. Um, that seems very, like, intuitively plausible. So um, one of the one of the things that I wanted to understand was um, why the opposite view, eternalism, that mm-hmm. that, that never happens. Um, why is that tr- the traditional view? Why is that the view that that you ha- are arguing against? Yeah, like with a lot of other philosophical views. I think that it has been the traditional view for historical reasons. So Frege was an exponent of it uh, and argued for for eternalism, semantic eternalism. And it sort of became accepted, the accepted view in semantics and philosophy of language. Um, And a lot of people um, took it for granted for that reason. Um, I think another reason is that there haven't been many uh, lengthy debates about this so there have been uh, people like Mark Richard who have argued for semantic eternalism. Peter Lotlow uh, has argued for, for temporalism, Kaplan, and so forth. But um, in in many of these cases, um, maybe Lotlow and Mark Richard are exceptions, but in many of these cases, the aim of, of the works uh, was something different. So, so even though there might have have been some arguments in the some of these works for eternalism or for temporalism. Um, there, there wasn't really, I couldn't find any really good lengthy um, works uh, that would discuss this or give a, a number of arguments for for eternalism or for, for temporalism. So since it, there weren't any uh, lengthy debates, then people were probably just going with, uh, with the accepted view, mm-hmm. or especially when they were arguing for something different. Um, and I think a, a third reason um, that has been that eternalism has been so popular uh, might be that it often has been taken to um, go hand in hand with um, a popular view in linguistics, um, namely the view that that there are no tense operators in the English language. Um, so, 
So I, I, I also think that uh, these two debates are aspects of the same overall debate. Uh, some people think that, uh, that they are not. But people in the past, at least, have seemed to, um, to appeal, sometimes appeal to the fact that there are no tense operators in the English language as part of this larger picture that propositions are um, eternally true or false. Um, and so, so because in linguistics uh, it's been common to say that there are no tense operators and because that seems to be related in various ways to eternalism, uh, that has been, I think, some reason for some people to take eternalism to be the right view. Um, so, well, you mentioned two things that I want to talk about. One was uh, Mark Richard's arguments, you know, that you discuss in the second chapter, you know, why we don't retain temporal contents over time, and also the issue of, of tense operators, um, which comes later in the book. You, you spend quite a bit of the, you know, I think chapters four, five, and six, uh, or thereabouts, talking about that issue. Um, so maybe we should can start... Uh, Explaining Richard's um, you know, basic argument uh, against temporalism, and then uh, you respond that we we retain beliefs in, in diff- uh, at least two different ways. Um, so, could you could you maybe explain that that de- debate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he he wrote uh, a couple of early articles uh, on on this debate, um, which which clearly also played a great role in making eternalism the standard view. So. Um, so yeah, so he thinks that temporalism has a problem uh, explaining how we can retain belief over time, and I think his the main reason for that was that he thought of belief retention um, not as having a belief for a long time with the same concepts, uh, but with a changing truth value, but rather as having a belief for say a long time with a content that doesn't change its truth value. So to take a very very simple example. Let's say that John says uh, on on day one, I believe that it's raining. And then the day after, Mary says, do you still believe that what you said um, you believed yesterday? And then John might reply that, yes, I still believe that it was raining on May, uh, May 5th. Um, so, yeah, day one, right, or May 5th. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, I don't believe that it's raining today. That seems very plausible, and, and that's... If that is the way that he's responding, that seems to support eternalism because he he thinks that he um, he still believes he still holds that belief, namely that it was raining on day one, um, but he doesn't uh, hold the belief that it's raining today. So it seems that what he's believing in that case is something that is eternally true or false, namely that it's raining on day one. Um, but well, in the in the book, I then argue that well, in fact, that there are there are two ways of retaining a belief, and what I say is that Richard was uh, wrong to think that this sort of argument can be used to settle the debate between eternalism and temporalism, uh, because there are these two ways of retaining a belief. Uh, so, so the one, one way would be that when John says, well yeah, I still believe it was raining on day one, right? But he could also say, if asked, do you still believe it's raining? He might say, no, of course I don't believe it's raining, right? And and that's that's um, a different kind of belief that he's he's um, rejecting in that case. I argue that that would be more like the, uh, the temporalist belief, just the plain belief that it's raining, right? And that's, that's a belief that can change its truth value. So he believed it yesterday, but he doesn't believe it today. Because he's seeing it, it's not raining today. Um, since um, since Mark Richard wrote that uh, those articles, and uh, and I've talked a little bit uh, with him about uh, belief retention, and he seems uh, to agree that there probably are these two ways of retaining a, a belief, and it's it's not obvious that belief ret- retention that that debate can. Um, be used to argue for either eternalism or temporalism because if there are two ways of retaining belief, then it seems that there are certain cases that would be problematic for the eternalist and certain cases that would be problematic for the for the temporalist. And that's what I wanted to say in that chapter in the book. So in that book, I'm not using that particular debate to argue for temporalism, but I'm taking um, the argument that used to be taken to support eternalism and showing that it goes both ways. Right, so you're sort of neutralizing that 
that argument against temporalism, I take it. Um, so can you, you, you do, um, so when you do, when you say that we, we can retain information over time um, stored in the past tense or um, in the present tense, um, you also make the, the claim that uh, the brain does not have a time tracker to keep track of time before it stores information. And I, I was wondering if you could say something more about that claim. Right. So the brain probably has a kind of time tracker. So empirical evidence suggests that yeah. um, that a part of uh, some cortical part of the forebrain uh, called the striatum functions as a kind of eternal internal clock um, that keeps track of time. So it's, it sort of has certain pulses um, that then can be accumulated in the varietal cortex on the top of the head, and then we can we can get a sense of time duration by comparing uh, what's in our working memory, comparing that to to retrieved information about time intervals. Um, but what the brain does not have. Is is a way of storing information with uh, with a timestamp on it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, so the brain does not automatically store information. For instance, the information that is raining with a timestamp on it, like say May six, um, two thousand thirteen. Of course, it can store information that way, right? We might we might actually store something that we remember with a particular date attached to it. Um, but that would require that we do have information about the calendar date, and we don't. So, so it's the, the brain itself does not have this way of putting timestamps on all of the information that we have. Um, okay, so uh, um, you also you also argue that um, uh, eternalists can't explain belief revision. Um, could you could you explain that argument? Yeah. Um, so, well, there, there, so there are certain ways in which we retain beliefs um, that the eternalist has difficulties accounting for. So, for example, if if I learn that John is a firefighter, or that John is uh, from a family of money, um, I don't, don't continue to believe that uh, by having a series of beliefs that he is, say, from a family of money on uh, at, at 1 p.m. on May 6, 2013, that he's from a family of money uh, on or at, at 2 p.m. on May 6, 2013, and so on. I just believe that he's from uh, a family of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I might revise the, my belief, but I don't go through this constant um, revision or, or update um, every instant of time. Uh, so, in, in, at least in some cases, it seems that I just have this neutral, time-neutral content, say that John is from a family of money or that John is a firefighter. And that's what I keep believing unless I get counter-evidence, in which case I might um, revise my belief. But that, but the eternalists cannot say that. They might be able to say other things, but they cannot say that because they are committed to the view that the information, if it has to, if it has to have the form of a proposition, has to have that date attached to it mm-hmm. uh, or instant. It's rather a time instant, but it's it's a particular time instant, so it's sort of like a date. So well, one of the, yeah, one of the things I found myself thinking was, um, you know, what this, these, what these times are that are, you know, components of a, of a proposition or the, the timestamp as you put it, that's on all propositions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, w- w- what is that? I mean, we, we, we specify it with a particular, you know, date or hour or something like that. But, I mean, there's there are different, you know, there's different moments, there's different intervals of time. Um, is, there a, is there a privileged time stamp that, that eternalists are thinking of? Um, uh- you know, a privileged, you know, I don't know, interval or uh, or moment. I mean, it's, yeah. it seems like if you think that all propositions have this timestamp, that this 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 component, um, there should be something importantly said about what this time component consists of. Yeah. So eternalists don't 
usually say um, how they are individuating instance of time. Um, it's supposed to be be some kind of uh, objects, right? Some kind of concrete time. Um, but as you as you mentioned uh, at first glance, it may seem more plausible if you're an eternalist to say that the times that end up propositions are time intervals. So instead of it being an instant, it could be a time interval. So with some extension to it. Um, for instance, it might be the time of our conversation, or maybe the time of my utterance, or something like that. Um, then a number of problems with that view that I, um, I, I do spend some time in the book uh, arguing against that view. And one, one problem is that if you hold that view, you need to say something about uh, how connectors uh, such as negation work if you have time intervals in, in propositions. So let's say I say uh, or make the utterance that John is a firefighter and you then disagree with me, uh, so you make the utterance that John is not a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And let's say that um, eternalism is true. So my utterance then uh, expresses a proposition. Let's say that John is a firefighter at, uh, throughout or at every instance during the conversation at which we're speaking. Then the question arises, what is it that you are negating in that case? So if that... If what I said if, uh, was true, what you would ne- uh, be negating would be that John is a firefighter at every instance during our conversation. So you would be saying, when you say when you make the utterance, John is not a firefighter, you would be saying it's not the case that John is a firefighter at every instance during this uh, conversation, which uh, would mean that you're saying that there is a time, some time, at which he's not a firefighter. But that's clearly not what you mean to say. So if you say that, if you make the utterance that John is not a firefighter, you're not just talking about some time or other um, at which John is not a firefighter, right? Um, it's, it doesn't seem that you're talking about uh, an instance in the future of our conversation or an instance in, in, in the past of our conversation. It seems that you're talking about the present. So it's really difficult for them to to account for how the connectors work, so that's that's one problem with that with that view. There are other problems, but that's um, I think that's one of the most difficult problems with that. That's intervals enter into the propositions, which would be one one version of eternalism. Okay, so it's but it is it is somewhat of a of a mystery what what this timestamp is supposed to be, as far as I can tell. Um. But then the, the temporalist says, uh, well, whatever that timestamp is, not all of our propositions or, or thoughts that express propositions and sentences that express propositions have these timestamps anyway. Um, so can you, can you give an, an, an example of how belief revision uh, and uh, this, the negation, I suppose, of uh, of particular things that are said in a conversation, how that proceeds on, a, on the temporalist view. Yeah. So on the, um, on the, on the temporalist view, um, so there, there's, I mean, there are various different things to, to talk about here. We could talk about um, agreement, disagreement, or, or belief retention. So on the temporalist view, uh, one way to, to retain uh, a belief would be to re- retain uh, the very same uh, contents over time, which we might do when we when we believe that, uh, or if I believe that you're a philosopher or that John is a firefighter, you might re- uh, retain that uh, same belief uh, over time. We might also um, believe something that's happening at the present moment but then go on to believe uh, a slightly different version of that content for a longer time. So if something were happening in my uh, office right now, uh, and so I can hear there's an explosion going on, um, I wouldn't, of course, keep that content. That wouldn't be the content of my belief over time. Uh, Rather, I would believe something like, um, well, it was the case um, when I was talking to Carrie that, uh, an explosion went on, so I have, I believe, this past tense uh, version of what I initially believed. So, so that's 
that's um, that's uh, how the or one way that you can account for for belief retention as a temporalist. Um, you can also there's also the the uh, agreement disagreements um, and. And that's, uh, I argue, is, is, is rather simple, according to the temporalist. I mean, that's a, it's difficult to say exactly what agreement and disagreement are. But in the simple cases where you have two people standing in the same room disagreeing with each other, for instance, um, they are simply disagreeing about the very same uh, temporal proposition. So, so if, they're, if you're saying John is a firefighter, I say John is not a firefighter. Uh, what we're disagreeing about is uh, simply the time-neutral proposition that John is a firefighter, not uh, the not the time. So that's not the the content. The time does not enter into the content of our our dispute. Um, though, of course, one of us will be right and the other person will be wrong. So um, yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned before um, the. The idea that, that that there are no tense operators um, in English, um, and and so the the latter half of the book, roughly speaking, um, is about this you know work in linguistics, um, uh, claiming that that tenses are not operators, um, but instead and um, they function as as quantifiers. Um, and so th- this is this is a bit more technical, but um, it's you know obviously a very important part of your of your discussion. So um, maybe you can say a bit about what it is for for tenses to be operators and what the uh, the new view is that uh, that they are quantifiers. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so the in in, in linguistics it's. A very rare view, um, the view that there are tense operators in the English language. It's in fact a lot more popular among philosophers of language. Um, there are there are some people who traditionally in linguistics have argued that the tenses are operators, and um, one is uh, Montague. I don't know how to classify him. Um, he, he worked very much in linguistics, uh, but um, was also considered a philosopher. And I do defend um, the Montague grammar that he lays out. I do defend that in one of the chapters. Um, but but the um, the debates uh, that has taken place that that uh, Jeff King and others uh, brought up as problematic for the view that there are tense operators in the English language. Um, has to do with um, how the tense um, the tense operators are supposed to to work together uh, when it seems that you have more than one tense operator. So a tense operator, just like a, a modal operator, is something that can change the the index or circumstance of evaluation. Um, so let's take a, a case, a modal case first. So if you uh, say that there are blue swans. Uh, that's false because there are no loose ones. But if you take that uh, proposition that there are loose ones and you embed that under a modal operator, um, it's possible that there are loose ones. Then um, the the content that loose ones is true because now it's not evaluated with respect to the uh, to the actual world. Now it's evaluated with respect to a possible world, and and there is a possible world. Um, in which, or it's a possibility at least, in uh, that there are blue swans, so the whole thing comes out true. And so the tense operators work in the same way. So I'm not uh, baking a cake right now, um, but if I insert I'm baking a cake, um, I'm, I take a past tense operator and put that in front of it, embed that concept into the uh, past tense operator, um, then it becomes it comes out true that um, it was the case that I was baking a cake. Mm-hmm. So content I'm baking a cake is true with respect to a past time and not with respect to to the present time. Um, but the problem is when, uh, or at least one one of many problems uh, that uh, Jeff King was was um, was actually looking at was is the problem when you have when it seems that you have more than one tense operator in. In a sentence, so if you take the a simple example, John was baking a cake yesterday, mm-hmm. and let's say you took uh, yesterday to be a tense operator, and you also take 
the past tense to be an, a tense operator. And then you line them up in front of the sentence or in front of this content. Um, it seems that you would have the yesterday. Um, what, what would that do? Well, that would take us back to, to yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, what would the uh, past tense operator do? Um, that would take us back to some time before yesterday. So on that view, then, John was picking a, picking a cake yesterday would come out true just in case John was baking a cake at some time before yesterday. Uh-huh. Okay, which is wrong. That's not what we want. Right. So what I suggest is that, well, you should be the, um, when you have these um, adverbials in the sentence, like yesterday, I say, well, they're part of the of the past tense operators. So I give an account of uh, complex uh, tense operators where in this simple case, it would come out as it was the case uh, yesterday that, so it's it, what it does with tense operators simply limits the time um, where you can evaluate the the proposition, so it's not supposed to be evaluated just with respect to to any time in the past, or and it's not supposed to be evaluated with respect to a time before yesterday. Rather, it it sort of delineates the time interval during which the proposition is supposed to be evaluated, and and the relevant um, index or or class of indices would be uh, all the, the times during yesterday. Uh, so. So that's that's sort of what I do in prior to, to outlining the uh, the Montague grammar or how we can account for for uh, past tense operators. So how, and how does this um, uh, compare to the the quantification view, the quantifier view? Yeah. So on, on the uh, on the quantifier view, the the tenses are uh, instead of being operators like most people would take uh, modal operators to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the ones in English, like it's possible that and it's necessary that. Um, so in, in the, um, on the quantifier view, if you have past tense, so if you have a simple case where it was the case that um, that P, then that is taken to be a quantifier, namely um, there is a time um, that is uh, prior to the present time, where the present time would be the time of utterance, and they would treat uh, the future future case as well in, in a similar way. So, uh, if it will be the case that P, then there is a time that is in the future of uh, the, the time of utterance, or is is after the time of utterance, mm-hmm. at which, uh, and then, uh, and then present tense. Uh, sentences. Um, so, so for instance, I'm talking would come out as uh, I'm talking at the time of utterance. Um, but, but that's so the quantifier view would say that these uh, quantifiers are part of the content that's expressed uh, by by these utterances. Or if it's applied to mental states, it would be part of the content of mental states as well. Right, which which would go with an eternalism much pretty clearly, right? Seems to to be more natural anyway to to um, take it to be um, sort of well a different debate but sort of an aspect of the same debate as debate about eternalism and it would go together with the eternalism. I actually argue that it's it's hard to to hold that there are no tense operators or not just that there are no tense operators in English but that the tenses specifically are quantifiers and also hold. Uh, the view that uh, that that propositions can change their truth values over time. Um, of course, uh, there might be a way of doing that, uh, but the, the most obvious ways of doing that do not work. So it seems that the quantifier view and eternalism go hand in hand. Right. Um, so you you also um, you also uh, discuss temporalism. Um, in the context of non-indexed, non-indexical contextualism, um, which uh, you explain as the idea that um, context-sensitive expressions have stable contents but variable extensions uh, across their contexts of use. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, explain the uh, explain this position and. Um, 
the uh, you, you argue against the so-called what you call the monadic truth package um, of Kaplan and Hawthorne, um, and if may, maybe you could explain this this uh, monadic truth pass- package um, and then how you argue against that. Yes. Yeah, so that's the view that um, Capellan and Hawthorne express in um, in relative truth or um, uh, relativism and monadic truth. I think the book is called. Uh, and the view is going against um, another traditional view, namely the view that that propositions uh, have their truth values relative to a world. Mm-hmm. So that's the view that most people have held in the past. Um, at the very least, they have their, their uh, truth values relative to a world. So their blue swans does not have a truth value relative to just nothing. It has uh, a truth value relative to the actual world. It's false with respect to the actual world. It's true with respect to some other possibilities or possible worlds. Um, but they hold that that truth value, uh, that propositions have their truth values not relative to anything, but simply. They simply have just truth values. So there are blue swans, uh, simply has a truth value, um, the not with respect to a world or time or anything else. Uh, and that, of course, takes um, uh, a lot of argument to do that. And they, they, uh, do, uh, they do uh, argue uh, uh, at length about uh, for that view in the book. And one thing they say is um, that you shouldn't actually treat tenses or modal expressions as operators. So they, they uh, one thing they could do would be to uh, follow Jeff King and certain linguists and say that both the modal expressions and the tenses or quantifiers, they do something uh, different, but that would be one way to go. But the main main thing they, they want to say is that, um, that propositions just have their truth values um, without having them relative to a world or relative to a time. Uh, or even relative to something else like um, a standard of taste or anything like that. So that's what they uh, argue throughout the book. Um, they also, it, it, there's a metaphysical view that seems to be the best one to hold if you hold this kind of view, and that would be the view that I outlined earlier as the, the I call it in the book, I call it the passage view, which is the view that... Um, that there is passage and that, for instance, that events are, well, past events and future events exist, uh, but past events and future events, they're not, they're not happening. They, they happen uh, at the present moment, and that makes a difference. That makes them different in some way. And times are concrete. The present time is concrete, whereas future times are abstract. abstract. In this passage view, um, you may be able to argue, well, this... Um, if if you if you do deny that um, that there's uh, or not deny except that there's something special about the the present moment, then perhaps you could say that we don't need to relativize to anything else because there's just something that's special about the the present moment. And so when I say that there are blue swans, um, it's sort of just what 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 there is is just the actual world and the uh, present moment. Maybe there are other things that exist, but there's something special about that, and so that's a natural uh, moment to, to relativize to. So, so that would be a way to sort of argue for the view that they argue for, but they, they argue for it on mostly on, on linguistic uh, grounds and give arguments from philosophy of language. Um, and, and your response, could you, could you summarize your response to that? Yeah, so... Uh, um, well, there, there are many ways to res- to respond to them, but I think that one I mean, one way that uh, I respond is uh, from from experience. So I, I look at mental states because what they are saying is that that uh, propositions do not have their truth values relative to anything else. So they don't have the truth values relative to a world or a time. Mm-hmm. And what I do is that I um, I argue for the view. I don't give an extended argument in that book, but I, I say that it's plausible that uh, perceptual experience and certain other mental states have 
propositions as their content. So you you could say you could call uh, perceptual experience a propositional attitude, but you don't actually have to do that. All you have to to say is that perceptual experience has a content, and that content has, or at least on some uh, occasions, it's it's a proposition. Um, and and then what I what I do is, is that I argue that um, that when you have mental states with a uh, distinctive distinctive phenomenology, um, that phenomenology uh, is it's a plausible view that that phenomenology determines uh, the content of the mental state. So I I uh, argue for the the. The premise uh, that um, you and I, or my my functional and physical twin and I, uh, can have perceptual experiences with the same phenomenology at different times. Well, what 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 does that mean? Well, it just means that um, that uh, two people, or even myself, at different times, um, can have experiences where things just look the same, but the times are different. But since we might not know that, we might be we might not notice that time has passed, or um, or we can take two different people they they don't know that they're uh, what precise what the time is precisely, uh, and so they could have experiences um, with the same phenomenology but be at different times, and then if the phenomenology determines the content, then um, we also get that we could have uh, two people who have experiences with the same content at different times. Um, but now if the, the proposition has times in it so on, on um, the eternalism, which if eternalism is true or if uh, Hawthorne and Capellan are right, then you have these propositions with, that have times in them. Um, but they would be different times. So you would have two people uh, who have experiences at different times um, with the same content, but if eternalism is true, you cannot have that because if there are different times, the propositions have different times in them. And so I use that to argue against uh, their view in particular, but you can also use it to argue against uh, other forms of eternalism. Well, could you could you say more maybe about um, how... You, you know your interpretation of uh, perceptual experiences as as propositional attitudes. Um, I mean, it's not that that's certainly uh, not a standard view by any means. Um, uh, that the that the content of of you know of uh, of perceptions are, is propositional, right? That that and that we have somehow attitudes to these propositions. Yeah, yeah. So. Um I would want to say that perceptual experience is a propositional attitude, but I, um, it's not. It's actually not necessary to say that um, to uh, to argue for this particular or to make this particular argument that I'm arguing. But I would need uh, to say that the content of perceptual experience is a proposition, and of course, that would be uh, a lengthy debate to to argue for this. So. I can just sort of mention some views that definitely would not accept this um, this view. So, if you are um, if you are disjunctivist or a naive realist, then you would not accept that the, that the content of perceptual experiences would be propositions, because they uh, disjunctivist and a naive realist uh, think that in the veridical case where your perceptual experience uh, is is right, uh, you are standing. Uh, in in a direct relation to an external object, mm-hmm. so the properties of that object, and so so they would, would disagree with that view. Um, there are other views uh, that would that would not uh, or could not accept the concept being a proposition. So there are views where somehow it's it's, it's raw sense data that would be the content in some broad sense of content, the content of perceptual experience, mm-hmm. that would not be, it would be very different from, from a proposition. It wouldn't have anything to do with propositions. 
But then there are uh, a bunch of views too um, in the literature that would that simply do accept that perceptual experience uh, has a concept that's a proposition. Uh, and of course, there are various versions of various representational views that accept that. There are also uh, hybrid views that are sort of compatible with uh, naive realism and disjunctivism, um, but are still representational views. So some people hold that um, that perceptual experience um, has actually has objects or are relations, direct relations to to uh, objects, and fundamentally so, but that they also represent uh, and in in a fundament and that's also fundamental um, to to perceptual experience to represent. So, and they do believe that the content has a form of a proposition, but there might be. They would argue that there might be objects in those propositions. So, uh, uh, so that's a way that you stand in a direct relation to the objects. Is that in the original cases, the object would be part of the proposition. So there, so there's definitely a debate there, um, and that is something that I argue for elsewhere. I argue for the representational view um, of perceptual experience elsewhere. Um, but, but yeah, there are definitely also people who wouldn't accept that. Now, when I made this particular argument, that was not, it, was, it wasn't a real option for, at least not for one of the two authors, namely John Hawthorne, to say, well, but naive realism or disjunctivism is true, uh, so I'm not accepting this premise. Uh, and the reason I, I so... I could make this point because he's, he has previously argued against disjunctivism and, and does not accept that view of perceptual experience. I don't know what he accepts right now, but in the past anyway. Um, and so, so, so they, it was not an option for anyway to, to simply say, oh, I'm, but I'm a disjunctivist, uh, so I don't accept that the content of perceptual experience as a proposition. But yeah, it's, it's a substantial thing, of course, um, whether you want to say that the concept of experience is a proposition or not. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, I would think that's, that is somewhat contentious and maybe, maybe something that you would be developing uh, in, in future work. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I'm actually, um, I do have some work that's um, supposed to come out where, has that as as it's deba- one of its debates. Um, so, uh, I, I guess we're we're sort of running close to the end uh, of time. I was just um, maybe you could sort of uh, wrap up in a sense where where you think the your book. Um, Leaves this debate between temporalism and and eternalism. Um, uh, you seem to be establishing, I mean, in in one sort of one big meaty discussion, um, uh, a you know the an, a new view or a, a or a view that has not been um, uh, adequately defended before, at least in one one place. Um, where do you see this this particular debate uh, going from here forward as as a result of your book? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that people who do think that it, um, that semantic eternalism is right that they are um, would come up with some um, some new and better arguments for the position because there there hasn't been all that much uh, in the past about or defending eternalism. So I would hope that that the book could at least give some debate about whether semantic eternalism or is the right right view. But I'm also hoping that uh, this will contribute to the the broader view that I'm interested in defending, namely tensism, uh, the view that there is a special present moment that's distinct from the future. And I do think that there are arguments from from language that can uh, help or support um, support that view. That's not what you need to do to argue for that view, but that's um, there are some of the some of these arguments uh, that can be used to establish or at least uh, be supportive of the view that tensism is correct. Um, there are also, of course, views that. Or arguments that depend more on our perceptual experience of time and so on, uh, but 
I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that uh, that there will be more debate about tensism, and I hope to contribute to that debate and provide uh, a defense, a more um, or substantial defense of tensism, so the metaphysical position that the time that's distinct from the past and the present. Uh, and I see I see the book uh, as being one part of that uh, larger debate, um, just dealing with the language and. But that's that's one aspect uh, of it. And even though you can discuss these issues about semantic eternalism and temporalism independently of the metaphysics, um, I do think that the two things hang together. And um, and I want to uh, argue for tensism in the future. Well, that uh, we didn't we didn't actually talk much, and you don't you don't go into it uh, a lot in the book. Um, the 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 uh, relationship between the internalism, the eternalism, temporalism debate in, in, for propositions, and then the debate between eternalism and presentism uh, in metaphysics. Um, so, may, so since you know, I sort of didn't didn't go into that because most of the book was not was not focused on that. Um, but since we are now talking, in a sense, about the metaphysics of time and how we understand it, and and um, uh, you know the the debates about um, uh, whether the only real the only thing real is the now or or whether you know all times are uh, exist. Um, maybe you could say a little bit more um, about that the relationship between what you discuss in the book uh, and these broader metaphysical views. Yeah. So, um, so what I, in the book I, I do try to keep those debates distinct because I, well, it would take more than one book to argue for for all of it. So I was trying to focus on on the language part in the book, but also on on the content of mental states. And though I think that uh, you you could be an eternalist and accept temporalism. So I mean, uh, now a um, metaphysical, yeah, and accept uh, temporalism about the language. And I even argue that there's there are problems if you don't. Um, I think that there's um, also a natural connection between tensism more generally and uh, and temporalism, which would be sort of just tensism restricted to language. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, the, these are different debates, uh, but it's. It's the view that would be very odd would be um, would be a view where semantic eternalism were right, uh, but tensism uh, is also right about about the world. Um, so that that's that's a combination that I don't I don't say anything much about it in the book, but it's it's a combination that has some some problems um, and so. So it's one one step in in the argument against um, the view that there's no privileged time. Mm-hmm. Need to to argue that temporalism is right uh, because uh, there are just some some classes that uh, seem to occur if you if semantic eternalism is right and then tensism also is. Uh, the, the, those two views seem to to class in various ways. So by arguing for temporalism, I sort of is sort of step one mm-hmm. or elsewhere, but that's uh, one step uh, in in the bigger debate uh, for tensism. So, um, your maybe you could say something about your uh, your next project then, or, or perhaps your your next project is is actually your your present project. I don't know. I, mean, I have I have a I have a few projects um, and. Um, one one uh, project is actually um, to to tensism and to try to recon, uh, reconcile uh, tensism, the view that there's a special now uh, that's different from the past and the future. Reconcile uh, that with um, with some of the arguments uh, from science that that there isn't a special now, and so so that's uh, that's part of my larger project to do that. Um, I'm not planning currently planning a book on that mm-hmm. though there might be 
my, but the next book I that I'm working on right now is is a book about uh, various perceptual language. So when we talk about how things look, or how things seem, how things feel, uh-huh. um, uh, I want to write a, a semantic analysis of those expressions and draw some consequences for uh, for theories about perception. And one hope, in fact, is that I can. Uh, make that leap from the how those works function in the language to uh, to an argument for a representational uh, view of perceptual experience. So that's that's my next uh, my next book project. Though I have some article projects related to to tensism. Okay, so I think we are just about out of time. Um, so thank you very much for for a very interesting discussion. Um, Thank you for your interesting questions. <laughs> okay. So we'll be looking forward to your, your next projects with uh, perception and, and tenses and both. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Britt Brogard, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. We've been talking about her new book, Transient Truths, an Essay in the Metaphysics of Propositions, just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.